The Murder of Tutankhamen, Chapter 3. Tutankhamen's Ancestors, the Glorious 18th Dynasty. Egypt believed its rightful place in the world order was on top, dominating her neighbors. The history of Egypt can be viewed, in fact, as a series of conquest. It was the natural order of things. To maintain supremacy, the pharaoh repeatedly led the army out of Egypt, smashed some foreign country, then returned home with anything of value that wasn't nailed down. The subdued country was expected to send annual tribute, or the pharaoh would return. Today we would view this as unprovoked aggression, which it was, but it was also the way of life in the ancient world. No pharaoh ever boasted, there were no battles in my reign. Annual invasions were necessary because the Egyptians never colonized. Once they conquered a foreign territory, that was it. They went home and waited for the yearly tribute. But with the army far away in Egypt, there wasn't much incentive for foreign countries to send tribute. So the pharaoh would ride out with his army again, repeating the cycle. War was the natural order of things in Egypt. Tuthmosis I, one of the early pharaohs in Tutankhamun's dynasty, is best known for his military exploits, but he is also significant because he is the reason that the pharaohs of the new kingdom are buried in the Valley of the Kings and not in pyramids. An autobiographical inscription in the tomb of Tuthmosis's overseer of the works, Ineni, describes how the first tomb was constructed. <clears throat> I inspected the excavation of the cliff tomb of his majesty alone, no one seeing, no one hearing. It was a work of my heart. My virtue was wisdom. There was not given to me a command by an elder. I shall be praised because of my wisdom after years by those who shall imitate that which I have done. Secrecy was indeed crucial if Tuthmosis' body was to be protected. Soon after the collapse of the old kingdom, the pyramids of Giza were plundered by tomb robbers and all the bodies destroyed. When the government finally stabilized, the pharaohs of the Middle Kingdom resumed pyramid building. But a diminished workforce and reduced resources resulted in interiors being constructed of, of mud brick with only a thin stone casing skimming their exterior surfaces. These pyramids were also plundered, so Tuthmosis' secret tomb carved into the cliff of a desolate valley was meant to outsmart tomb robbers. Eight generations later, Tutankhamun would join his august ancestor in this place that became known as the Valley of the Kings. Those generations included some of the greatest monarchs ever to rule Egypt. Tutankhamun's ancestors, the kings of the 18th dynasty, elevated the concept of the warrior pharaoh to heights never before seen. The pharaoh Tuthmosis created an army of thousands of well-trained, well-equipped career soldiers. It was totally unlike the small corps Narmer had organized, and it had an advantage that Narmer couldn't have imagined, the chariot. Two horses pulled these chariots that carried two men, a driver and an archer. Chariots were constructed from imported wood, elm wheels for its suppleness, and ash for the body because of its strength. The floor was woven from leather thongs and covered with a leather flap. 
acting as a shock absorber, providing a relatively stable platform from which the archer could shoot his arrows. It was a light body with a lot of engine. Supporting the charioteers were the infantry. Each soldier carried a leather shield, spear, battle axe, and dagger. The infantry marched 15 miles a day. By the time Tuthmosis was through with his campaigns, Egypt was master of 700 miles between Egypt and the Euphrates River. On the banks of the Euphrates, Tuthmosis erected a stella, a large round top stone resembling a giant tombstone, this served as an ancient Egyptian bulletin board. If you wanted to announce something, you carved it on a stella, and Tuthmosis proclaimed that this was Egypt's northern territory. The only surviving child of Tuthmosis and his queen was Princess Hatshepsut. There is no word for queen in ancient Egyptian. The phrase we translate as queen is actually king's roy- great wife. Had Hatshepsut been a son, the royal crown would have passed directly to him. But she was a girl, and this created a problem. It is not always clear how the successor to the throne was chosen. It wasn't as simple as in England, where the laws of prima blah 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 decreed that the throne was passed down through the king's eldest son, which specified contingencies for all possibilities. In Egypt, the pharaoh had several wives and could also marry his sisters, so the lines of succession for his children could be rather complex. Overall, the rule, known as the heiress theory, covered most cases. Whoever married the eldest, most royal daughter became pharaoh. When Tuthmosis died, his son Tuthmosis II, by a minor wife, was married to his half-sister Hatshepsut, the eldest daughter of the pharaoh and his great wife. Marriage to Hatshepsut established Tuthmosis II's right to the throne. The couple had a successful, uneventful 20-year reign. When Tuthmosis II died, he left two children, a daughter by Hatshepsut and a young son, Tuthmosis III, by a minor wife. Hatshepsut ruled as regent for the young boy for about seven years. Then, suddenly, one of the most incredible events in Egypt's long history occurred. Hatshepsut changed her royal title from queen to king and had herself portrayed in full male royal regalia, complete with a beard. This was unheard of in conservative ancient Egypt. By wearing the false beard and the royal kilt of the pharaoh, Hatshepsut was attempting to stay within the traditional boundaries of Egyptian kingship. She was the king who happened to be a woman. The only reason Hatshepsut pulled it off was that she was a good administrator and her reign brought prosperity throughout the land. That she chose to be represented as king posed several challenges for the artists and scribes in Hatshepsut's court. Was the pharaoh to be referred to as his majesty or her majesty? They did it both ways. When Hatshepsut died on the 10th day of the 6th month in the 22nd year of her reign, February 1482 BC, Tuthmosis III became sole ruler of Egypt and through his conquest went on to become 
the greatest military leader Egypt had ever seen. In the 16 years following Hatshepsut's death, Tuthmosis III led 14 military campaigns north of Egypt, causing Egyptologists to dub him the Napoleon of Egypt. In year 33 of his reign, Tuthmosis battled his way to the Euphrates River, defeated the king of Mitanni, and erected his own stella alongside his grandfather's, and another one across the river. A generation after her death, Tuthmosis had Hatshepsut's name erased from all her monuments in an official attempt to remove any trace of her from the records of Egypt. It was too revolutionary to admit that a king of Egypt had been a woman. This erasure of a pharaoh's name and memory established an ominous precedent. A hundred years later, a similar purge would sweep through Egypt. This time, Tutankhamun would be the target. When Tuthmosis III died after 54 years as king, Egypt was the military power feared by all in the Middle East. He was Tutankhamun's great-great-great-grandfather. The remaining pharaohs between Tuthmosis III and Tutankhamun maintained the great tradition of their ancestors. They elevated the 18th dynasty above all previous and subsequent eras of Egypt's glorious history. Now, Tutankhamun's direct ancestors began to emerge. 25 years before his birth, Egypt was ruled by his strong-willed, decisive grandfather, Amenhotep III, or Amenhotep III, a man whose probity and strength would echo loudly through the lives of succeeding pharaohs. Secure in his claim to the throne because his father had publicly nominated him as his successor, Amenhotep was able to marry a commoner. His wife did not have to be of pure royal blood to establish his right to rule. To commemorate his late his marriage to the Lady T, he sent his ancient Egyptian equivalent of a telegram, a carved stone in the shape of a scarab beetle, a symbol of good luck. On the base of the scarab was the inscription, The king's great wife T, may she live. The name of her father is Yuya. The name of her mother is Toya. She is the wife of a mighty king. Anyone reading between the lines would get the message. T is a commoner, but you had better accept her as my wife. All indications are that it was a successful marriage. Statues of the king show T next to him, represented in almost equal size, a great honor to his queen. Royalty was always shown as idealized, but T's portraits often convey a sense of the person. The beautifully sculpted head of Queen T in the Berlin Museum is that of a mature woman with handsome, regular features, a strong woman who got whatever she wanted. T bore the king six children, four daughters and two sons. The princesses were given important titles. One daughter, Sit Amun, was called the king's wife, which suggested some Egyptologists that she was married to her father. Often, sisters married their own half-brothers, but it was rare for a pharaoh to marry his, to marry his own daughters. The oldest son, named Tuthmosis, after his ancestor, was groomed for the throne by being given the important position of high priest of Memphis, 
one of the two capitals of Egypt, along with Thebes. This was a shrewd maneuver on the part of Amenhotep III. It was always politic to honor the gods of Egypt, and he now had a loyal family member inside the powerful priesthood. The younger son, Amenhotep, was named for his father, but he was mentioned in no royal inscriptions, is not shown in any statues, and his name appears only on one broken wine jar. Such were the inauspicious beginnings of Tutankhamun's father, a prince who appeared to have no future. We will look closely at this enigmatic figure in the next chapter. The reign of Amenhotep III was as close as Egypt or almost any other country got to paradise. Never did precious ungents and oils flow so freely, turquoise, lapis lazuli, and gold adorn more necklaces, or rich aromatic cedar form more temple doors. Food was abundant and there was peace. Thanks to Amenhotep's predecessors, Egypt now firmly controlled the area from northern Syria to the fifth cataract of the Nile, the center of the Sudan. The military rarely had to demonstrate its might by fighting. So firmly had all the earlier invasions driven the lesson home. A steady flow of gold from Nubia, Sudan, and the western desert kept Egypt's economy strong, promoting a foreign king corresponding with Amenhotep III to observe, Gold is like dust in your country. One has only to pick it up. From Cush in the south came elephant tusks, giraffe skins, and ebony wood for palace furniture. From Afghanistan came lapis lazuli to be carved into amulets of the gods and used as inlays in jewelry. By now, foreign traders were regularly plying the Mediterranean. From Crete came exotic jars for palace use. Cyprus contributed copper ingots. Amenhotep had favored the gods, and the gods had favored Egypt. It was good business all around. Amenhotep and Queen T led a cosmopolitan life, successfully integrating both halves of the country. They traveled frequently between Memphis and Thebes. Memphis, the northern capital, was situated where the Nile began to branch out into the Delta Fan on its way to the Mediterranean. It was the administrative center of Egypt where the king resided to control the country. It held the national archives and accommodated thousands of bureaucrats. Little remains of Memphis today because of a rising water table at the site. A colossal statue here, a massive column there, evoke what must have been the busiest city in the world. Sadly, the office complexes that, were compo- that composed the city were constructed of sun-dried bricks. The time and rising water have returned to the mud from which they came. The palace suffered the same fate. All the precious documents from the archives disintegrated and rotted away. The fate of wet papyrus. Glorious temples have sunk out of sight into the moist ground. The 400-mile journey from Memphis south to Thebes took the royal barge about three weeks, sailing against the current. The boat was a huge, lumbering craft, about 200 feet long, built for comfort on river voyages. Along the way, Amenhotep stopped to perform rituals in the temples. 
events that would be remembered by generations of priests who would finally recall their brush with a living God. If Memphis was like Washington, filled with records and preoccupied with business, then Thebes was like Paris, wealthy, glamorous, and alluring. Thebes was a city of edifices, built for the glory of the gods, not of functional office buildings. With every military conquest, Amenhotep's ancestors had heaped large portions of their plunder on Thebes' temples in gratitude for their success. Coffers overflowed with gold, storehouses burst with endless bolts of white linen, the priestly cloth, and produce arrived in endless streams from thousands of acres of donated farmland. The priests were rich and on their way to becoming independent. Their land produced wheat, cattle, vegetable, everything they needed, plus a surplus that could be sold. So when the royal barge finally docked at Thebes, Amenhotep and T would have been met by a thriving, prosperous priesthood. Homer called the city hundred-gated Thebes because of the countless huge pylons that form the entrances to temple upon temple. And indeed, Thebes had temples to many gods, but the reason for the city's importance was the patron deity Amun, the hidden one. To this god, Egyptians attributed the resurrection of their country from the anarchy and foreign domination that followed the Old Kingdom. By Amenhotep's time, almost a thousand years of pharaohs had taken Amun as their special patron and pledged donations for his support, making Thebes more splendid with every gift. Amun had eclipsed even the old god Ra, incorporating that former preeminent god in one of his titles, Amun-Ra. Represented as a man with a tall crown surmounted by two ostrich plumes, Amun was married to the goddess Mut. With their son Kansu, they formed the Trinity, the holy family of Thebes. Amenhotep's own name meant Amun is pleased. He proceeded to outdo every other pharaoh in ensuring that God's continued satisfaction perhaps urged on by priest, Tutankhamun's grandfather embarked on the most massive building ever to honor the patron god of Thebes and himself. He seems also to have had genuine beliefs of his own. After all, he named his oldest son, Tuthmosis, Toth is born, in honor, in honor of Thoth, the god of writing. His second son was named for Amun, as was Amenhotep himself, and his eldest daughter was named for that god as well. The pharaoh began his homage to Amun at the great temple of Karnak, the largest religious structure ever built. It was not really a single cathedral, but a complex of temples and shrines sprawling across acres of land in no particular order. Like Topsy, it just grew as over the centuries each pharaoh dedicated his particular monument to the gods. When Amenhotep began his addition to the great temple of Karnak, the pylons of Tuthmosis I and his daughter Hatshepsut were still standing. People still marveled at Tuthmosis's obelisk, the first to be erected in Karnak Temple. First, Amenhotep constructed a pair of grand entrance pylons, the third pylon, 
in front of the other buildings at Karnak, so that these largest, most magnificent gates would be the first anyone would see. Their cornices were brightly painted and festooned with colorful pennants that flew from 60 feet high. Shining electrum, a gold-silver alloy, covered poles. The imposing structure was dedicated to Amun. A mile and a half from Karnak, in central Thebes, stood another temple of great importance. Once each year, shaven-head priests bore the weighty gold statue of Amun to a special divine bark, which others carry, while others carried the statue of his wife Moot to her ship to form a convoy that sailed to this temple. Priests in their finest white robes joined important dignitaries adorned in silver and gold to trail the vessels in a procession called the Beautiful Festival of the Harem, the most festive, most important holiday of Thebes. The celebration recreated the wedding of the two gods and of the conjugal bliss that followed. It took place in the Harem of the South, a smallish temple used just once a year. Amenhotep directed his architects to replace the old temple with a beautifully proportioned, more imposing substitute. They produced a colonnade hall of seven pairs of majestic lotus columns leading into an open court. Two sides of the court were flanked with a double row of papyrus bud columns roofed by slabs of stone, creating a shady spot beside an open yard prefaced by a forest of columns. Past the court, at the far end of the temple, a double sanctuary was constructed, the Holy of Holies, that housed the gold statues of Amun and Mut. Amenhotep had outdone himself in this tribute to the great god. It was the largest temple ever built by a single pharaoh. Amenhotep took such interest in these projects that he built a palace across the river, which open land where open land was still available, so he could reside in comfort near enough to oversee the construction. Only a few walls of this place have survived, since each building was intended for the lifetime of just one pharaoh, and were constructed of impermanent mud bricks. Enough remains, however, to show it was a splendid affair. Floors were brightly painted with scenes from nature, walls with colorful, decorative borders, Rather than a single large building, it was a compound with a separate building for the king and his staff, another for the queen and her court, another to serve as the kitchen, and still others to house the palace guard. In addition, there was a large auditorium, or festival hall, in which Amenhotep celebrated special jubilees, celebrating his long rule. It seems that, despite proximity to the Nile, Amenhotep constructed an artificial lake behind the palace large enough for Queen T to sail her barge. As time passed, Amenhotep's personality mingled more and more with the glory of the city. He ordered a pair of the largest statues ever carved of himself, seated in 70 feet high majesty, to lead the way to a new temple dedicated to his memory. Nothing of this temple survives today, but the massive, seated statues of Amenhotep still gaze eternally towards Thebes. These are the famed Colossi of Memnon that amazed visitors in antiquity. The unparalleled building spree of Amenhotep 
must have energized the city to an unprecedented frenzy. He provided steady work for thousands of workers, quarrying, cutting, dressing, and transporting tons of stone. Hundreds of artists carved and painted scenes on gleaming new temples and the luxurious palace. Riches flowed into Thebes as never before. A magic grew about Thebes that captured the hearts of poets. She is called the city, says a late New Kingdom hymn in her praise. All others are under her shadow to magnify themselves through her. Soon the banks of the Nile were dominated by magnificent architecture, presenting a rich facade that hid a less than perfect interior. The houses and shops of the mortals sprawled in confusion behind the temples, forming a maze of dirty, narrow, winding streets. It was a noisy city filled with the sounds of horses, pen ducks, pigs, and people busy at their work at surviving. Although they resided in the greatest city in Egypt, life remained hard for the common people. Clouds of dust hung over their houses from the continuous cutting and polishing of stone for all the construction. Overpoweringly pungent odor emanated from all the animals in crowded conditions, and flies, lice, and fleas were ever-present. Despite its face of splendor and energy, or maybe because of it, Thebes began to question itself. Many in the upper class believed that the priesthood of Amun had become too rich, too materialistic, and too powerful. Although the king and the nobles of the city continued to pay tribute to Amun, as time passed, some of the faithful added an interest in other cults. Amenhotep led the way when he took the new title, Dazzling Sun Disk of All the Land. It became popular at the court to contemplate the nature of the sun disk, the Aten, an interest not confined to the king alone, for Queen T named her pleasure boat the Aten Gleams. People in the highest places were thinking about religion now, instead of merely going through the old motions. This profoundly affected the mind of Amenhotep's ignored second son, who would ascend the throne before long. For his final resting place, Amenhotep selected an isolated wadi west of the Valley of the Kings that had never been used before. Why he chose not to be buried near his august ancestors of the 18th dynasty, we will never know. Amenhotep III had a mind of his own. Then, tragedy struck the elderly king and his wife. Their eldest son, Tuthmosis, the high priest of Ptah, died. This was the son groomed to succeed his father. Their grief must have been intense, compounded by the fact that all of Amenhotep's plans for the future, for Egypt after his passing, died with his boy. Now there was the real question of who would succeed the pharaoh. There was a second son named Amenhotep for his father, but there probably was a reason he had been so rarely mentioned. He may have been afflicted with some very strange disease. No doubt there were other contenders for the throne, perhaps sons by Pharaoh's minor wives, some of whom were princesses of foreign countries. But only one was T's child. She must have schemed successfully in his behalf, because with all his problems, 
he became the heir and more. And what seemed a surprising move, the aging king appointed his younger son, Amenhotep, to be co-regent, which meant that they would rule together. There would be no controversy as to who ruled Egypt when the king died. The question is, why did Amenhotep III, the energetic and powerful ruler, agree to share his power? The answer can perhaps be found in Amenhotep III's mummy, which was discovered in 1898 under strange circumstances by a very nervous Egyptologist. Victor Loré, a Frenchman, served for a short time as head of the Egyptian Antiquities Service. High, strong, and unsuited for his high administrative position, Loré managed to antagonize both European and Egyptian authorities, and consequently lasted only two years. He had barely time to undertake the first systematic excavation in the Valley of the Kings, discovering the robbed tombs of Tuthmosis I and Tuthmosis III, Egypt's Napoleon. He also found the tomb of Amenhotep II, in which lie the answer to our question. This, too, was a plundered tomb. Broken bits of blue ceramic and wooden funerary objects with Amenhotep II's name littered the entrance passage when Loray uncovered it. Crawling through the passageway, Lorraine came to a square shaft, or well, designed to catch water so that the burial chamber would remain dry during the rare cloudbursts that occurred in the Valley of the Kings. Placing a ladder across the well, Lorraine crossed into a square, pillared antechamber and saw broken funerary boats and models of what the pharaoh would need in the next world. Gilded images of the king and broken Ushapti servant statues that were supposed to come to life in the next world and perform any task needed. It was now late into the night. Loray was tired, and with only his candle to illuminate the scene, his imagination started to take over. Then the candlelight fell on something for which he was not prepared. I went forward between two columns, and my candle, with my candle and horrible sight, a body lay there upon the boat, all black and hideous. Its grimacing face turned towards me and looking at me, its long brown hair and sparse bunches around its head. I did not dream for an instant that this was an unwrapped mummy. The legs and arms seemed to be bound. A hole exposing the sternum, there was an opening in the skull. Was this a victim of human sacrifice? Was this a thief? murdered by his accomplices in a bloody division of the loot, or perhaps killed by soldiers or police interrupting the pillaging of the tomb? What Loray had seen was the mummy of a prince, disturbed so soon after his burial that the oils and resins used in embalming were still liquid. The robbers had placed the body in one of the molded boats, where the oil solidified and glued the mummy to it. Regaining his composure, Loray continued his descent, eventually arriving at a burial chamber containing a lidless stone sarcophagus. Peering over the top, Loray saw a coffin with a garland of flowers at its head and a wreath at its foot. He had found the mummy of Amenhotep II. Loray's long evening was not over. Examining the four side chambers off the burial chambers, he found statues of the pharaoh, 
vases for the seven sacred oils the king would need, meats and fruits to sustain him in the next world, and wooden models of boats for his journey to the netherworld. It was in one of these side chambers that Loray received his next shock. We passed to the rooms on the right. In the first one we entered, an unusually strange sight met our eyes. Three bodies lay side by side, at the back in the left corner, their feet pointing toward the door. The right half of the room was filled with little coffins with mummy form covers and funerary statues of bitumen, resin painted, wood. These statues were contained in the coffins that the thieves had opened and rejected ever after having searched in vain for treasures. We approached the cadavers. The first seemed to be that of a woman. A thick veil covered her forehead and left eye. Her broken arm had been replaced at her side, her hands in the air. Ragged and torn cloth hardly covered her body. Abundant black curled hair spread over the limestone floor on each side of her head. The face was admirably conserved and had a noble and majestic gravity. The second mummy in the middle was that of a child of about 15. He was naked with the hands joined on the abdomen. First of all, the head appeared totally bald. But on a closer examination, one saw that the head had been shaved, except an area on the right temple from which grew a magnificent tress of black hair. This was the corf of the royal princes, called the Horus Lock. I thought immediately of the royal prince, Weben Senu, this so far unknown son of Amenophis II, whose funerary statue I had noticed in the great hall, and whose canopic fragments I was to later find. The face of the young prince was laughing and mischievous. It did not at all evoke the idea of death. The last corpse nearest the wall seemed to be that of a man. His head was shaved, but a wig lay on the ground not far from him. The face of this person displayed something horrible and something droll at the same time. The mouth was running obliquely from one side nearly to the middle of the cheek with a pad of linen whose two ends hung from the corner of the lips. The half-closed eyes had a strange expression. He could have died choking on a gag, but he looked like a playful young cat with a piece of cloth. Death, which had respected the severe beauty of the woman and the impish grace of the boy, had turned in derision and amused itself with the countenance of the man. These, these three corpses, like the one in the boat, had their skulls pierced with a large hole and the breast of each one was opened. The condition of the three mummies inside the chamber and the one in the boat was caused by methodical tomb robbers. In their search for jewelry, they hacked at the wrappings on the heads first, quickly stripping the outer linen. Then they hacked at the chest, searching for more jewelry, damaging the royal bodies. Loray had no idea of the identities of the four mummies, and his judgment was certainly confused that night. The third mummy in the side chamber that he described as a man is clearly that of a young woman. To this day, the identities of most of these bodies remain uncertain. One identification was made almost a century later and required both modern technology and a find in Tutankhamun's tomb, but more about that later. 
The four mummies that so moved Luray were not the only ones he found that night. One of the side chambers had been sealed with limestone blocks, with only a small opening near the ceiling. Luray climbed to the top and with his flickering candle was barely able to make out nine coffins, neatly arranged, six against the wall and three in front of them. That was all he could see, and he realized that the wall would have to be taken down before the coffins could be studied. But, the fir- but first, the tomb had to be cleared. Lorraine mapped the tomb, superimposing a grid to record the position of more than 2,000 objects. Only after this was he finally able to examine the nine coffins behind the wall. Lorraine had discovered the mummies of eight kings of Egypt and an unidentified woman. These mummies had been rescued from their plundered tombs by a 21st century dynasty king in order to protect them from further desecration. Written on the bandages of the mummy of Seti II was a sad story of how the convention of kings came to be held in the tomb of Amenhotep II. On the sixth day of the fourth month of winter in the twelfth year of the reign of Pinagem I, the king had collected despoiled royal bodies, rewrapped them, and placed them in the tomb of Amenhotep II for safekeeping, where they remained until Loray's discovery. Among the mummy mummies were Tutankhamun's grandfather, Amenhotep III. The mummy of Amenhotep III, along with the others, were taken by boat to Cairo, where it remained till it was unwrapped on September 23, 1905. The mummy of the father provided the clue as to why his son, Amenhotep IV, became co-pharaoh with his father. The king was fat and in very poor health when he died. When I examined the mummy in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, it was clear that Amenhotep must have been in great pain towards the end of his life. He suffered from horrible abscesses on his lower right incisors and his upper right canine. I could tell he had lost the incisors sometime before death as the sockets had filled in with new bone growth. Dental disease was common in ancient Egypt for king and commoners alike. Not from eating too much sugar as it is today, but from their daily bread. All grains in ancient Egypt were stone ground, which meant that along with your bread, you ate a considerable portion of sand and grit. Years of eating Egyptian bread wore down the teeth, exposing them to decay. Skilled as the Egyptian physicians were, they did not practice dentistry. With the severe deterioration of his teeth, Amenhotep III must have been in constant pain. He may have been sedated with wine or even the new wonder drug of the 18th century imported from Cyprus, opium. Cypriot physicians collected the sap that oozed from slits in the poppy's capsule, then dried the sticky mass for easy application. Applied directly to a wound or tooth, it may have had about the same effect as a modern-day injection. Amenhotep would have found it difficult to carry out the affairs of state as his health deteriorated and may have been so sedated that he was in no condition to make decisions. Under these circumstances, it would have been easy for the determined Queen T to convince her husband to share the duties so difficult for him 
in his pain state with their son, Amenhotep IV. As co-regent, her son was assured the throne when the old king died. When the young king finally came to power after his father's death, one of the first changes he seemed to have made was to improve a new technique for the mummification of his father. The embalmers injected tree resin and salts under the skin of the arms, legs, and neck to fill them out and to give the body a more lifelike appearance. It was a small break with tradition, but one that foretold dramatic changes to come. <laughs>